0: Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your everyday with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code MSheet at ViaHemp.com. That's V I I A H E M P dot com. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners.
2: Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com/wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com/wondery. Content
0: warning: This episode contains discussion of murder. If you haven't done so already, please go back and listen to our last four episodes to catch up on our look at the 2017 murders at the Naughty Fish and Chicken in the South Shore neighborhood of Chicago. This will be our fifth and final episode of In the Shadow of Nadia.
1: As a recap, on the night before the killings of the restaurant, a man named Jerry Jacobs was gunned down in the South Shore. The next afternoon, a gunman killed four young men at the Nadia restaurant. Hours later, someone murdered a couple in their car in an area not far from the earlier murders. The police quickly arrested Jerry Jacobs' 19-year-old son, Maurice Harris, claiming that he had killed the four men at the restaurant in retaliation for the death of his father. And then they went to the media, outlining their seemingly strong case against Maurice for the murders. Overnight, it seemed as if all of Chicago was convinced of his guilt. His family and friends remained in his corner, though. So did Ian Barney. The attorney here represented Maurice in his civil suit against the Chicago Police Department. The justice system moved slowly. Over three years passed. Maurice remained incarcerated. The city moved on. Most people forgot about him. And then there was a surprise.
0: Murder charges against the man accused of shooting four people inside a Chicago restaurant back in 2017 are now dropped. 22-year-old Maurice Harris was facing more than two dozen counts. One of his attorneys tells the Chicago Sun-Times he expects Harris to be released from jail, quote, relatively soon. Katie Johnston for CBS2 Chicago. My name is Anya Kane,
1: And I'm Kevin Greenley.
0: And this is The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast.
1: Anya and I connected over the Burger Chef murders, a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees.
0: Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, The Murder Sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout season one to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes.
1: We don't just rely on skimming the headlines. We dive into these cases to bring you in-depth coverage. We're the Murder Sheet, and this is In the Shadow of Nadia, The Reckoning.
0: attorney, Ian Barney, about how this case finally ended.
1: Uh, can you discuss with us the process of uh, what was involved in getting the uh, charges dismissed?
3: Well, I mean, the process was basically presenting everything we had to the state's attorney who was handling the case, uh, who is a, a very good guy, very smart prosecutor. Uh, but he is somebody who, who I think that I trusted that he wanted to also get it right. So that was encouraging and we kind of, you know, wanted to marshal our evidence for him. And we talked to him about it multiple times. Um, and then, you know, he had his own stuff going on in terms of the information that they had received from the U S attorney's office and some of the other information in the case. Um, So the process was basically, you know, we just kept at it with him, kept the the kind of conversation going. And he promised to have an open mind on the case. And so far as accepting new information and not being totally myopic. And um, he did that. He, you know, he, he, I think when he came on the case, he believed that, you know, they had the right guy. But over time, uh, I think I guess the way I would put it is the calculation calculation changed in terms of he no longer believes he could prove uh, beyond a reasonable doubt that Maurice Harris committed the crime. I think ultimately, I said this before. I mean, ultimately, what what really convinced them was this information from the U.S. Attorney's office. But I think that um, you know it's unusual for a quadruple homicide to get dismissed. I think that's a, a mild way of, of putting it. I'm not sure that they would have dismissed it without having additional uh, evidence that corroborated the information that they had received in the defense investigation. We we did a good job of, um, of bringing all that stuff forward and kind of giving the prosecutor a sound basis to not move forward with the case.
1: For Maurice and his family, it was the happy ending they had hoped for since the day he was arrested. But this young man had spent years of his life behind bars for a crime he did not commit. Why did it take so long for the authorities to recognize they had made a mistake?
3: Uh, It's not unusual, I would say, for murder cases to take time to work their way towards trial. It's not unusual in general. In this particular case, um, I would say there were a number of factors that uh, prolonged the process even more. Yeah, but, but the justice system works slow. There's a lot to do. And from our perspective, you know, one, one thing we kept preaching was patience because we wanted to get it right. We felt like we could get this right. We felt like we had really put in the case on a uh, good track with our investigation. Um, yeah, it, the case pended for a while, but for you know for reasons that when you're in the process makes sense it's not as if you know there was feet dragging going on by anybody
0: i wanted to ask you if there were any um, moments while looking into this case where you kind of were like i don't maybe like i don't know if we're going to be able to <sighs> um, solve this or, you know, help Maurice, um, and, and prove that he's innocent and, you know, get him out of jail at this point. Like, did you have like any specific moments where you were very concerned in that regard?
3: I mean, the whole case, to be honest with you, I mean, up until the point they dismissed it because my feeling is that, um, it would have been a jury trial. You go to a jury trial and the, the outcome is just uncertain. Uh, I think I said this last time, people are convicted for for things that they didn't do. That is a a fact. We know that happens. And jurors do the best they can. But one, this was an emotionally charged case. Uh, It was uh, really a cold-blooded cold um, case. I mean, these were cold-blooded murders. One of the individuals was essentially executed on the sidewalk. Um, Yep. You know, it's not the type of case that you really want to be defending somebody against in front of the jury. Um, It was a really horrible case. So from that perspective, we were always worried about it. I never wanted it to go to trial. I felt confident that we we would do a great job for Maurice. I knew that. We had worked our tail off on the investigation. We had gathered a whole bunch of evidence that... um, was exculpatory, or put holes in the state's case, or, or whatever the case was. Um, but at the end of the day, you just don't know what a jury's going to do. You don't know what um, you know what they're going to consider. You don't know what they're going to believe. You don't know what you, they're going to think is um, the most important thing in the case. So while I may, as a lawyer, may think X is important, a jury may think Y is important. Um, <clears throat> so it was always a fear that that even though, you know, we were doing everything under the sun to um, win the case for Maurice, that, you know, it wouldn't have been enough. That You go to a jury trial and there's a degree of luck involved.
0: One reason why juries can be so unpredictable is that they get their information from the press. At times, the media can be structurally biased towards police and law enforcement. For instance, the news of Maurice's arrest back in 2017 Generated prominent media coverage throughout not just Chicago but all over the country. But when the charges against him were dropped, it was a much smaller story. In Barney's experience, this sort of thing is not unusual.
3: I mean, my experience is um, the the media and I look. I'm I'm certainly a fan of uh, of the press just in general, but the media jumps all over cases when they're first charged and they put in the. Uh, kind of salacious details that, that the prosecutors or the police release at the beginning, and then they don't ever show up to court again, and they don't know anything about the case. They don't know what happened to the case. And there's people who are acquitted uh, of crimes that they were, you know, convicted of in the press at the beginning of the case, and and the record's not corrected. And I was disappointed to see that there wasn't uh, a better correction here. Just in general, uh, from some of the reporters who wrote stories uh, when Mr. Harris, when Maurice was arrested, and you know, recited all of the information provided by the Chicago Police Department in their press conference, and all and by the State's Attorney's Office and their bond hearing proffer, and all that kind of stuff, that was printed. But you know, I don't, I don't know if anybody would set that court did when the case was dismissed and the states attorney said we don't have the evidence to move forward to, you know, to prove the case. So that's disappointing for sure. I, I wish if someone's going to pick up the case, uh, if a reporter's going to pick up the case at the beginning, I think the responsible thing to do would be to follow follow through on covering the case uh, to see what actually happens.
0: I feel like there's sort of two threads to this story that I'm sort of grappling with. and And, and the one is that, you know, in a way, the system really worked here. You were able to defend Maurice, the prosecutor was reasonable, and um dropped the charges when that seemed appropriate to him. And that's good. and then he, he got he got released. Um, and then on the other hand, it's like a young man lost like four years of his life being imprisoned, and it's like that's that's a horrible thing. like what what's your sort of takeaway from this experience? Like what do you think listeners should take away from this story?
3: Well, I think maybe the most important thing is that, well, two two things I would say. One, uh, people do get charged with crimes that they didn't commit. It happens. And I think it happens more often than, than people would like to admit. Two, Maurice's case is the exception. The absolute exception. You could probably count on one hand the number of murder cases that have been dismissed over the last, however, you know, many years, last few years. Um, it just doesn't happen. The um, mindset is more so, well, let's just go to trial and we'll see what happens, um, rather than, well, let's, let's really dig into this and see if there's problems with the case. And if there are, maybe you know, we'll be open to get, getting rid of it. I think there just happened to be some, some really compelling aspects of this case that uh, kind of, you know, f- forced a certain decision. Um, but it does not happen frequently. Um, so I think it's important to, to understand that this is the exception, not the rule. Um, but it, it I don't want to say it shouldn't be the exception because you would hope that most people who are charged with crimes are, um, you know, they're not being wrongfully accused. But I think one of the important lessons from this case is that you do have to have a critical eye, uh, whether you're on the defense or you're a prosecutor, because you just when you're passing judgment on somebody on such an important issue, um, in my view, there needs to be a, a certain level of certainty involved. And Maurice's case isn't the only one I've seen where you you really wonder if they got the right person. So you know. I, I I wish a critical eye was being put to more cases.
1: Is it also frustrating in this case that the real perpetrator or perpetrators remain free?
3: Um, I mean, from a just a, a personal standpoint, that's you know, from a pro- professional standpoint, that's you know, that's really like, like I said, that was not my job. My job is to prove who committed. This crime, from a personal standpoint, I I feel for the families of the victims. I don't know that they'll ever get closure, um, because I don't think anybody will ever be charged with this crime. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think at this point it's it's going to become an, uh, an impossibility to prove that somebody else did it. I think it's almost an impossibility to bring this case to trial at this point, given that somebody else was charged all the witness statements out there and things like that. Um, so I feel for the families of the victims that they, they may not get all the closure that they uh, hope or wish they would get. And, you know, I'm sorry about that for them. I, I'm sorry that they had to go through any of this stuff. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, my view is whoever did this is still out there. And uh, that's—I don't think that's good for anybody.
1: Before we ended our conversation with Barney, we wanted to ask how Maurice is doing today.
3: Um, what I would say is I've always, as, far as long as I've known Maurice, and it's been over four years now, almost in—I well, guess it's been five years now. Um, Maurice is a is a resilient kid, very resilient kid. So. Um, if you talk to him, you wouldn't maybe even really know he went through some of this stuff. Um, he's, he's got a very likable personality. He's easy to connect with. Uh, he's kind of a fun loving guy. So how does it affect him? I mean, I can tell you from, I, without getting into the contents of the conversation, I can tell you that this stuff affected him. Um, things that he thought about and you know, things that nobody wants to to live with, um but he never let that show really on the outside. He was always um, a a very easy person to uh get along with and very easy to deal with very easy to to connect with on a personal level. but I know that that, that these events have you know they've they've lost some scars on them for sure.
1: we had asked to talk to Maurice for our show but he declined through Barney. Given what he's been through over the past few years, we can certainly understand that.
0: In a moment, we will do something a bit unusual for us and talk, unscripted, about what we think about this case and what it means. Let's take a quick break from the murder sheet to tell you about a podcast investigating yet another unforgettable crime. The Orange Tree is a seven-part series about a 2005 homicide that happened near the University of Texas at Austin. The murder of 21-year-old Jennifer Cave, who was shot, dismembered, and left in a bathtub at her friend Colton Petoniak's apartment, continues to haunt the area to this day.
1: Like the Burger Chef murders, this case features plenty of twists and turns, including Colton's flight to Mexico with another UT student, Laura Hall. Both were later convicted in connection with the crime, although Colton has continued to appeal his verdict and claim innocence. The business student-turned-convicted murderer now says that he doesn't even remember much about the night Jennifer died.
0: The Orange Tree is reported on and produced by Haley Butler and Tanu Thomas, who were both seniors at the University of Texas when they started this project. Together, Haley and Tanu strive to piece together this tragic story in an in-depth podcast that features audio from courtroom scenes and interrogation rooms, prison phone calls, and exclusive interviews with both the perpetrators and the victim's family. You can binge all seven episodes of The Orange Tree today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle. But it doesn't have to be.
0: For so many of us, lifestyle changes, like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises, are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin And now, back to the murder sheet.
1: So what do you think that the case of Maurice Harris and the murders at Nadia Chicken says about our justice system?
0: I think that this case, the first thing that comes to my mind is how many Maurice Harris's are out there currently in Chicago and outside of Chicago who are languishing in prison for a crime that they did not commit, who do not have Uh, a lawyer like Ian Barney and the legal representation and the team that Maurice had behind him to uh, defend him from these charges. uh, I think, you know, in recent years, there's been more of a focus on potentially wrongfully convicted people. And you and I have discussed some of them where we actually think some of the high profile ones are likely guilty and that People are jumping on sort of a bandwagon. But for all the cases that you do hear about, you know, there's there's probably many cases you don't hear about that there's been a miscarriage of justice. Uh, A young person, an old person is is stuck in jail because, um, you know, they were wrongfully convicted. And it's just it's it's a sad thing to think about, I think, uh, for all the people who didn't have the resources that Maurice Harris had and you know i think it also says something pretty bad about bias on a number of levels how so in our criminal justice system well we talked about you know the in Maurice's case he is a young african american man um i think that obviously needs to be taken into consideration here when we ask why were police so quick to signal that he was likely the murderer to the press and and had that whole ridiculous press conference where they talked about his criminal juvenile record and did all sorts of bizarre and unprecedented things. Um, You know,
1: can we talk about the police for a minute? What do you think about the bike team that was operating in the South shore area of Chicago? That was the group of officers who were basically going around harassing uh, men and women of color for no good reason,
0: and children of color as well, and yeah, I mean that just shows a level of out of i don't know, out of controlness that just seems kind of astounding, but then again, I mean it was happening, and uh it certainly does not speak well for the Chicago police department, frankly that members of their own ranks were behaving in this way and basically acting without any sort of um any sort of uh, oversight. I mean, the whole thing about that was when it eventually came out that these bike patrol officers were harassing people. Suddenly nobody knew who their commanding officer was. So it was not like this was a situation where there was a rogue captain and just nobody was willing to even claim these officers as their own. And if nobody's willing to be in an oversight position, then how, how can you, how, how can you have any sort of accountability when something goes wrong. I mean, it just, it, it's, it's completely ludicrous that this was happening in, in 2017 or no, I guess maybe it would be a little bit earlier, like 20, you know, the, the 2000s. I mean, we're in the 21st century and this is happening. Basically you have these cops acting almost as if they're like medieval knights who work for a local warlord and are going around rampaging and doing things without any sort of accountability, any sort of reckoning.
1: And even now, in hindsight, there hasn't been any real accountability for it. I don't think the department in Chicago has really come to terms with what these men did. And certainly the department has never been held to account for it. They wouldn't even talk to us on the show about it.
0: Yeah, I I think it's one thing. And I think, frankly, I don't think they've been held to account by the media. You know, I, I think that I think when you have a police department that's so obviously out of control to this extent where you have two cops basically getting away with beating the crap out of a, you know, tiny teenage boy in a store over nothing. That's where's the outrage. There is outrage in the community, but why is that not being translated into the mainstream media?
1: Why do you think the mainstream media in Chicago has not played up this story as much as you think they should?
0: I have no idea. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: We talked once about uh, the possibility of beat capture. Can you talk about what that is?
0: Okay, yeah. As a journalist, beat capture is something you hear about. Uh, Beat capture in journalism basically refers to when you cover a beat, you get to know people on that beat. So let's say, take me, for example, I'm a retail reporter by day. And that means I write about different big box stores. Uh, Maybe I get to know the folks at Target, for example. Um, And I become friends with their PR people and I think they're nice people. And then it comes time for me to write something that might make target look a bit bad. Maybe I don't do it because maybe I kind of don't want to piss off my friends. That is beat capture in a nutshell. I mean, I'm kind of simplifying it, but that that's pretty much it. And that can happen on any beat, but I think something we've, that the media writ large has come to reckon with recently as uh, since the George Floyd murder. And, you know, even previous um, reckonings on race like Ferguson, you know, like there's a lot of beat capture that goes on on the police beat, unfortunately. You know, policemen can be, you know, police officers rather can be great sources for somebody who's covering crime. Um, but if, if it becomes too much like you're the stenographer of the police department, then you're not getting the whole story. You're just getting the police perspective on things. So to have beat capture in that area... Is, is intensely problematic when we start to realize that police institutions are by no means perfect. And when they F up, need to be held to account. And perhaps there even need to be conversations about policing communities differently and, and maybe defunding the police and putting some more money into other services instead of the militarization of the police. So like, I mean, you know, it. and if you're representing, if you're writing about your community and writing about crime in your community, you know, be capture is not great. I'm not accusing anybody in Chicago of, of that. I'm not saying that that's what happened here. I'm just speculating. I just don't understand why this wasn't covered. I think the other story is that a lot of regional and local um, news outlets are really hurting for staff. And when you have, an understaffed news publication, some things are going to get left behind because the reporters are just stretched thin. They're trying to do a lot. They're trying to cover as much as they can. Um, They're not making a lot of money. They're stressed out about their jobs. And I think we can all understand in a situation like that, you know, that would be bad for local coverage because important stories like this might get left behind.
1: Yeah. And I think they get most of their stories literally directly from the police the police hand out press releases the police say come to this press conference we'll give you a really big story and the police aren't going to give out a, a press release saying we really messed up they're going to give out stories that make them look good uh in this case they certainly gave out press releases and had this massive press conference announcing maurice harris's guilt when maurice harris was uh exonerated there were no such press releases and there was almost no coverage whatsoever. We just found a little tiny story about it uh, on an inside page of the Chicago Sun-Times.
0: Yeah, and I give them credit for running anything because uh, nobody else seemed to, uh, you know. And again, we're not trying to come for the Chicago reporters or, or their Chicago media. I'm sure they do great work. I'm sure there's been a lot of coverage of different police incidents and, and problems and whatnot. But I think... I I think this this story says something about the way that certain uh, incidents or certain stories or certain narratives can sort of get memory hold by an entire city when they're not really covered extensively. And when when there isn't a reporter there to really do the digging and say, like, hey, I've put this all together. We need to we need to talk about this.
1: Yeah, I think the Chicago media missed this story. I think uh, I was frankly shocked that no one in the Chicago media seems to have pointed out that this person whom the police are saying is a quadruple murderer, saying this person had uh, extensive ties and connections and experiences with the Chicago police. No one mentioned that, you know, a big part of his connection with the Chicago police is that he was suing them because they had uh, beaten him.
0: I mean, you can love it. You can hate it. You can disagree with it. You can agree with it. You can think that Steve Avery and Brendan Dassey are guilty as hell or innocent as angels. But I mean, the whole they managed to I mean, the people behind that got two seasons out of the fact that basically this man is arrested on a rape that he definitely did not commit, exonerated by DNA. And then he gets out. He's he's going to potentially uh, get a huge sum of money from the county for wrongful conviction. And then suddenly he's accused of murder again, or he, he's accused of a heinous crime again, gets convicted of murder. You know, the rest of the story, if you've seen that documentary series. And so like, th- that's a big story. People, people have been talking about that r- wrestling over that, but why not? Why are we not talking about Maurice Harris? In his case, it worked out for him better because he was not convicted a second time. I mean, he, he wasn't convicted of, you know, the crime that he was accused of murder, Um, But the fact that this happened at all and the fact that he basically had like years of his life taken away as a young man because on very scant evidence just seems just seems appalling in its own way.
1: I mean, you could make the argument and I think Ian Barney might make the argument that the justice system is slow, but we should be grateful that at least in this case, it finally got to the right result. Do you find any comfort in that?
0: No, I respect Ian Barney, and I I respect his opinion on that. And I think, you know, you lawyers are definitely going to feel that way about the system when, you know, things like this happen. Well, at least it eventually worked. But I I, I think this I think this whole thing is a disgrace. And I don't think this would have happened if Maurice Harris was some rich white boy from the suburbs of Chicago. I don't. I mean, maybe something would have happened in in regards to a wrongful accusation or whatnot. But I kind of don't feel like he would have been in jail the whole time. I don't know.
1: He was ultimately exonerated, of course, but he did lose years of his life, and he didn't even get to go to his own father's funeral.
0: Yeah, I, I, I we we need to. I mean, the human cost of this is 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 has has a pretty incredible magnitude because you have Maurice Harris using, losing years of his life, doesn't get to mourn his father by going to his funeral. Um, previously, was brutalized by the police, and and then is sort of tricked by them into coming into the department to talk about his father's murder, gets arrested himself, gets jailed, you know, but then you also have the families of the four men who were killed, basically getting re-traumatized by the fact that somebody, the police basically all but say, we've knocked this one out of the park. We got our guy. He's, he's in jail. We're going to convict him. It's, you know, don't worry about it. And then that guy gets released and nobody is held accountable for this brutal mass slaying that happened in daylight in a public business and nobody's getting punished for it. There's no answers. We don't have any answers. And, and that's, that must be really, I mean, I can't imagine the pain that those family members and the people who loved those four men would be going through over this. Cause it's, that's a nightmare. It's an unsolved case at this point.
1: It's awful for me to think of the poor Jackson family. They lost uh, a relative in a murder at another chicken restaurant. And then in this particular case, uh, a mother sees her two sons shot to death in front of her. And no one has been held accountable for, for this crime. And judging by the way the police handled it or mishandled it, if you will, it's very likely that no one ever will be held accountable for this crime
0: tell, tell me more about that in, in regards to like the technicality or, uh, the specifics around why it would be so hard at this point even if somebody came up in the street and said i did the nadia murders why would that be difficult to make that charge stick
1: well in a case like this you'd re- rely on eyewitness testimony pretty heavily Unfortunately, in this case, a number of witnesses, either because they were coached by the police or from rumors they heard, these witnesses said it was definitely Maurice Harris that they saw. And then these witnesses recanted their testimony. They said, no, actually, it wasn't Maurice Harris or I wasn't where I said I was or or whatever. And so because of this, these witnesses who have recanted or changed their stories came forward and said, oh, guess what? It was... uh, John Smith, I saw who really committed those crimes. Any competent defense attorney could say, "Well, it's interesting you say it was John Smith. That's not what you said six months ago," and that could knock away those uh, witnesses' stories.
0: Right. So it's it's really in a a very unfortunate place.
1: And you need more than you know. If a person came forward and said, "I did it," that doesn't really mean anything. We know from our experiences studying Burger Chef In other cases, there's a lot of false confessions. Yes. And particularly in situations like this, somebody might say they did it just to get credibility, just to seem tough.
0: Right. And yeah, I mean, it's 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 a it's a disaster. It's really sad. It's a really sad case ultimately because even though Maurice Harris didn't get convicted or spend. Decades in jail over something he didn't do. It's like you can't be too happy about the charges getting dropped because. Of how those those four families must feel and, you know,
1: and not just those four families uh, later that night, two other people were shot to death in a vehicle not far from Nadia. Uh, We've been told that those murders are related and those families aren't getting justice. And let's also get back to Maurice and his family. His father was murdered on the streets of Chicago the night before. That crime has never been solved.
0: And I think one thing that also kind of pissed me off personally about this case and and also kind of sticks in my mind thinking about it now. and like when you when you talk about how, you know, the police talk about these victims who were killed, you know, in this in this sort of short time span, all these people um getting shot and murdered. In Chicago. And so often the refrain is, you know, well, they were they had gang ties. Everyone has gang ties. And I mean, I'm not saying you should downplay organized crime when you're when you're discussing the cases. I'm, I'm truly not saying that. But to me, a lot of this language sounded pretty coded in regards to, um, you know, most of these victims uh, were black men. And when you're talking about gang ties, it just it just feels a little bit like the police basically kind of like dismissing it or kind of like, hmm, you know, we're not going to solve it because we're not going to be able to pick through the myriad angles of this gang war, basically. And it just it the, the, to me, it feels like the the opening of like an excuse, basically.
1: And also, it seemed to me that a lot of the talk about gangs, not just here, but in general uh it seems to me that there's a lot of implicit vilification of a person for choosing to join a gang. And maybe even they brought this onto themselves by making that choice. And maybe that's an easy conclusion to come to if you live a very comfortable and privileged life. But let's think about these people on, in the South shore of Chicago where they are being hunted and harassed by police officers who are coming and humiliating them and beating them in front of their friends Uh, In a situation like that, if I lived there and was facing that sort of harassment, if I had an opportunity to join a gang who would stand by me, I think I might do it.
0: I mean, frankly, I mean, this is a this is a cliche at this point, but it seems like the largest, most powerful gang. Was sort of the authorities in in that part of Chicago, at least when Maurice was growing up and, you know, and and particularly the bike patrol, you know, that this is their they're violent. They're acting with impunity. No one's accountable. They're basically going around and her- selecting random targets to harass. Um, sounds like a gang. And when you're faced with basically the authorities acting like a gang, that might spur more gang formation in the neighborhood just, just for the sake of protection. If you're a 14-year-old boy dealing with that, if you're a teenage boy dealing with that, you know, you're know you going to want to band together together. So no one fucks with you, you know, pardon my French, but I, you know, it's I'm not excusing gang, you know, activity. I'm not excusing organized crime. Obviously, that leads to a lot of suffering and bad things happening. But when it it just feels like it's an out of control situation when you have the police also behaving much like a gang.
1: Comparing the police, to gangs, brings up uh, a rather obvious question. One One thing the gangs are rather notorious for doing is that they will go to often outrageous lengths to protect their own. In this case, Maurice Harris was suing the police department of Chicago for harassing and beating him. And he had video proof of what happened to him, and he was winning that case. And then suddenly he is arrested and charged with quadruple murder and basically convicted in a press conference in front of the whole city. Do you think there is any connection between him getting that sort of treatment and him fighting the police in court?
0: So I'll say to that, that we, you and I, as we investigated this, as we looked through different documents, court filings, as we talked to people, we did not find any shred of evidence to support any sort of theory that the Chicago police intentionally framed Maurice, for lack of a better term, in order to, uh, you know, get him convicted, get him thrown away so the charges against them would be dropped and they wouldn't have to, you know, shell out for a lawsuit or or have some of their own guys get fired. We don't have any evidence of that. Nobody's saying that. Nobody has said that as, as or offered any evidence around that. But I mean, it looks pretty bad, right? I mean, I, I whatever I mean, listen, I'm not saying that's what happened. But I also think that if you're an institution that's sort of tasked with keeping the community and the public safe, you know, maybe before you uh, have a public press conference naming the guy who's suing you as your big murder suspect in a really heinous case, maybe you should make sure your case against him is like existent <laughs> beyond conflicting witness statements that may or may not have been coached. I think that would be my statement on that. I'm not going to say that anything untoward happened here in that, in that regard. But I also think, I guess, if again, if I mean, it just doesn't seem very, it doesn't seem very rational to go so public with a suspect like that. I mean, you'd think, let's just talk about like what would be the normal or maybe advisable thing to do in a situation like that. If you were the authorities, you know, Somebody has just heinously murdered a group of men at a restaurant. You think you might have somebody who did it, you know, in lockup. Maybe the thing to do is to just keep working the case, keep investigating that, you know, until until trial. And then things can play out as they will in the court. Right. I mean, I can understand saying we've made an arrest, but saying we got him also he's a bad guy because he did crimes when he was younger seems like a, a it's an odd thing to do, given what we understand of the typical playbook that is advised in cases like this, where you don't play all your cards in a public press conference.
1: Of course, Ian Barney was outraged by that, and Ian Barney also told us pretty conclusively that he didn't feel there was a connection between the civil suit, and what happened to Maurice in the criminal courts. Uh, i like to talk a little bit about, about Ian Barney. He is a very busy attorney, but it's obvious that this case meant a lot to him because he would always find the time to talk to us about it when we had questions. Sometimes we'd have to go weeks between our conversations with him because he was so busy. But I was really impressed with how much this case meant to him and how hard he fought for Maurice.
0: Ian Barney's awesome. You and I definitely enjoyed really getting to talk to him about this case in depth and getting his insights on not just the case but sort of his approach to law. And yeah, I think he's a really impressive lawyer. I think if you were having trouble in the city of Chicago, he's he's definitely a good bet. He just seems to really have a, some really good instincts around what his clients need. But yeah, he's a very impressive guy, very smart, obviously incredibly passionate about his legal work. Um, and I think he really does his clients some some great service. And and, you know, I think he 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 definitely this definitely made an impact on him. You know, but I think he I also appreciated his like level of, you know, rationality. He's not going around being like the Chicago police are corrupt or the whole system is corrupt. He's very much like you know, not playing into conspiracy theories, not playing into just whatever sounds good. You know, he, he's very much after the facts. What did you think about, you know, we one thing that this case, this kind of miniseries sort of lacked was the voice of the man at the center of it, Maurice Harris. He, he declined to comment. He didn't want to kind of go through it again. As somebody who represents the sister of a victim of a heinous crime, you know, tell me how that sort of, fit into your understanding of like what, what it means to really be in the center of one of these cases and not just have it be something that you read about or listen to or whatever, but something that you actually live through.
1: You never know how you're going to react to something like this until you're in the middle of it. And there's no one healthy way to respond or not to respond. Uh, We've researched and, and worked on murder cases where the family is very involved and very concerned and very talkative and very vocal about wanting justice. And we've also done cases where the family, in order to heal, wants to just move on and get on with their lives and not dwell on the past. Maurice seems to be someone who just wants to get on with his life. And I understand that. I, th- I think if it were me and something like this happened to me and I lost years of my life, if I thought about it too much, it might make me too angry. I just make me furious. And maybe the healthy thing to do is just to move on and concentrate on enjoying what it's like to be free.
0: I think we can definitely understand that. And it's also not a victim's job because Maurice is a victim here. He was victimized by the system. You know, whether that was intentional or not, we're not saying that we're, but we're just saying like he you know, was brutally beaten. His dad was murdered. Then he was accused of some sort of revenge murder that, you know, was so weak that the charges were ultimately dropped, but not before he spent years in prison. So, you know, I think when you're, whether you're the family member of a murder victim, whether you're the victim of a brutal attack, whether you are somebody who was wrongfully convicted you know, it's not your job to perform for people and like t- take them inside your trauma. You know, that's that's your private business. And I think we, I think sometimes as consumers of true crime, you can get a little bit like, well, I want to hear that person's story. And, and, you know, it's like it's not it's not like um, a fictional movie that you can kind of like just get into. It's something horrible that happened to somebody. And I think it bears for all. all I think all of us should remember that. Sometimes it it can get it can be easy, understandably, to get caught up in sort of the story of things and sort of maybe forget a bit that we're really talking about the worst day of several people's lives here. How did um, how did how did how did did it feel to, to you for to visit Nadia's, which is still in business on the South Shore?
1: We try as often as we can to visit the locations of where these crimes happen. And it's always very helpful because just reading about something or seeing video of it, it doesn't really give you the impression of what it's like to actually stand there in that neighborhood. Uh, I found it fascinating to be there. It wasn't quite what I expected. There was an empty lot across the street. Uh, there was a couple of nice apartments not far down the road. What did you make of the neighborhood?
0: Yeah, I always feel like I'm really bad at picturing a place like we'll be reading about a crime and really getting into it. And I'll like have some like dumb cartoony idea of what it is. And then we get there and it's totally different. In this case, it was it was definitely a you know pretty quiet day, pretty quiet neighborhood. There were a couple of people walking about, but I was just, you know, and the thing is right now we're in the, you know, when we visited, it was still sort of pandemic times. We weren't really, we were only just starting to come out of it. So that might've been part of it.
1: Didn't you feel a little nervous?
0: I felt a little nervous. I mean, (laughs) I think in terms of the fact that this was the site of what seems like, a random or at least somewhat random crime where, you know, four people were gunned down and we still don't understand the reason, you know, that that's, I think, enough to make most people a little nervous when they're visiting a place. But, you know, in general, it was just, it was mostly just odd to be there because it was, it was, it was just, like, silent. There weren't a lot of people, not a lot of cars. And you're just, like, thinking about, like what happened in 2017 and just like how awful, you know, this, you know, this, the sudden sound of gunfire erupting on the street like that, how awful that must have been for everybody, you know, in the vicinity to, to hear, you know, cause it's like suddenly a normal day is just thrust into like this horrible new reality that you have to deal with and like be afraid for your life. It just, you know, it was definitely eerie. It gave me a very eerie feeling. And like the water and the one thing I didn't picture the water of Lake Michigan is like right nearby. Like you're like a few blocks away and it's so blue and beautiful. And you know, you're like in this inland ocean and it's just like you watch that and it's very calming and like beautiful. And then you like think about what happened and it's just, I don't know, just we were driving around, we were driving past that and then we go over to Nadia and it's just kind of like you're thrust into this like, grim reality of like what happened here it just seemed odd being so close to something so beautiful. What did you think? Uh, you know, we taught, we kind of shot on the, <laughs> we kind of criticized the, the Chicago media, but we have to give them credit because that's how we found this case. It's not like it wasn't covered at all. Do you want to talk a bit about the initial coverage that got us interested?
1: Back uh, last summer before uh, this podcast was even a glimmer in our eyes we got interested in compiling information about restaurant homicides. And the reason for that is because we were interested in the Burger Chef case. And the Burger Chef murders murders have some very unusual and unique features. And we got to wondering, are those features really unique or unusual? And so the only way to figure that out is, let's look at a bunch of other restaurant murders. And so in the course of doing that and looking up different newspaper articles... From the past, we were also looking at articles that were current, and we had Google, different Google alerts set, uh, set up to alert us of developments in restaurant murder cases. And one of these Google alerts let us know about this case in Chicago where the Sun-Times ran this little tiny article about some man named Maurice Harris getting released and charges dropped against him in the Nadia Chicken case. And usually when you see something like that, you just kind of assume uh, this person must have gotten off on a technicality. But in this case, uh, Ian Barney, Harris's lawyer, was quoted as saying that if the standard of proof had been proving beyond a reasonable doubt that this man was innocent, we could have done it. And that really caught my eye because that's a pretty it was a pretty strong word. That's
0: basically a lawyer doing like the Babe Ruth thing where he pointed the bat to indicate he was going to get a home run.
1: But I saw Barney's comment and it got me curious. Does he really mean that? Is he just talking big? Uh, So we decided to talk to him and get the facts. And that's what led us to this case.
0: And also we talked about what Ian Barney was like earlier, but like, I was really impressed that he just sticks to the facts. It's not like a bombastic lawyer thing where it's like, well, oh, we're going to do this with that. It's like, no, no, no. Like he knows what he's talking about. I think that's very impressive because anybody could say, I'm going to prove my client innocent, but it's another thing to really try to you know, back that up. Um, I wanted to ask you, because maybe this is, you know, with with us, how we tend to read or view cases, you know, you're a lawyer, I'm a journalist. I think this is, I'm speaking generally here, this is not always the case, but I think generally I tend to be more sucked into like the more like, oh, this is a conspiracy, it's more complicated than it looks. And you tend to be more like, like that's my bias, which I try to fight against, obviously, and just go with the facts. But I think your bias tends to be, you know the prosecution if they if they charge the person and like won the conviction the person's probably guilty like it's hard to has the, you know it's hard to do a wrongful conviction almost in, in in many cases is that fair and like has this case changed your thinking about that at all yeah in my in
1: my in my thinking most cases of so-called wrongful convictions are just not wrongful at all. We're just seeing very zealous defense attorneys with good press strategies fooling people. And the press, again, because the, we talked earlier about the press just basically often printing press releases. The press will print press releases from defense attorneys or have uncritical interviews with defense attorneys who are promoting the idea of a wrongful conviction. And they don't challenge those narratives and people get the wrong idea that wrongful convictions are much more prevalent than they are.
0: I think that's absolutely, and I can, I'm can. i a journalist and I can say that absolutely happens. And it can happen with anything from a wrongful conviction to a new business strategy to, you know, conspiracy theories about autism being ca- caused by vaccines. You know, it's an, it's an unfortunate reality.
1: I think wrongful convictions do happen. Yes. I think that the fact that they are covered so uncritically means that a lot of them that are do get covered and get attention aren't really wrongful convictions. And so that makes it harder to find the true cases of actual wrongful convictions. So this hasn't changed my thinking. I recognize the justice system is imperfect, but, uh, things like this happen and, uh, I'm glad the system worked in the end. Yeah. I guess generally speaking, my bias is, you can explain something. The most likely explanation for any event is the dullest, least interesting explanation that fits all the facts, which often is the prosecution's theory.
0: Such a prosecutor. Um, Yeah. I, I tend to think, you know, I don't know. I think I always like to get, I mean, I, one thing that was frustrating to cover regarding covering this case is as a journalist, I like to get all sides of the story. You know, I like to, I really like to get everyone in there. Not That's not to say that I want to uncritically both sides of story and say like, ah, oh, these two things are equal. But I, I like it when at least you can get both sides on the record to say, okay, here's my take on it, here's my take on it. And then you can kind of weigh both of that in your coverage and at least present both sides, even if you're maybe saying like this was a bad thing no matter what that this happened to this young man. But, I, I mean, I was disappointed that the Chicago police couldn't even spare, like, enough time to, like, give a statement to us or something. And we we made them aware about what we were going to cover. It wasn't like, you know, hey, just give us a quote on this. It was, like, very much like, we're going to talk about this and that and this. And they just – they didn't give anything. And it just felt like, you know, if you want to be a institution that leans into accountability and leans into – learning from mistakes and takes its role in the community seriously. I think you should give a statement. <laughs> I think you should send somebody to talk about it, not to spin but to to give insight. So, that was that was definitely disappointing, maybe not surprising, but you know, you know, when you're, when when you're when you are the institution in society that is licensed to kill basically the the instrument that can dole out violence in order to further what the state wants you you need to be accountable to the people you know this is not a police state you don't get to do whatever the hell you want but i think i think some would would prefer it to be more police state where, where people go away and they don't question what you did. And, you know, you can send a bunch of bike cops around to harass teens in the neighborhood and nobody says anything about it. How does this case make you feel?
1: I have a lot of faith in the justice system. I'm glad it worked out in the end that an innocent person was not incarcerated, but it leaves me shaken that that innocent man lost years of his life. And it leaves me very badly shaken the person or persons who took the lives of six young people in Chicago would never face justice for what they did and for what they took away from the people who loved those victims.
0: It's bad all around, even though there was a good outcome in Maurice's case.
1: Before we go, I I thought maybe we could say uh, just a a few words about some of the things we have coming up. Uh, You know, we often ask at the end of the shows, if you have any ideas for uh, cases you'd like us to cover, to please write and let us know. And in the next few weeks, we're actually going to cover a case that was suggested by uh, a listener. Also, we have two more mini-series coming up. One of them is going to actually break our format a little bit and not deal with restaurants. It is a possible serial killer case that Anya has a special connection to. And the other one we're going to do is we're going to return to Burger Chef and go a little bit more in-depth and maybe cover a, thing, a few things that are a bit more controversial than what we covered last year.
0: Yeah, we're gonna get into it, guys. <laughs> get ready. It's gonna be it's gonna be interesting. Well, I'll I'll be curious what you guys think of these this revisit to you never can forget our our mini series on um the burger chef murders.
1: So, if any of you have any questions that you'd like us to cover in the burger chef episodes we're now preparing, please get them to us right away.
0: Yeah, we'll try to address your questions at least. You know, if not in an episode, then in an email.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. As always, thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com.
0: To keep up with the latest on The Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, at Murder Sheet, and on Facebook, at M-Sheet podcast, or by searching Murder Sheet. If you enjoy listening to The Murder Sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure. And send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.
2: Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment.